When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another edition of the VanCast Harm. I was so excited about talking about six wins and seven, the Canucks being above the playoff bar in points, if not points percentage, trying to dunk on Drancer from afar, like all of those things that are so much fun for both you and I to do. Um, and then they did that, which really is kind of the problem, isn't it? I mean, this is a team that has such extreme highs and lows that it's so difficult to believe they've turned a corner. That Yeah, they might get some points because they hit one of those extreme highs, but then we come back and look at a game like that and see everything that was always wrong with this team. Yeah, first of all, let me just say, I've been doing the, the VanCast for months now, and I still don't think I've done an episode coming off of a win. I know, right? It's, it's you. Like every, it's like every setup or start to the podcast is the exact same, where you mention, oh, we'd love to be positive, or we were hoping that this would go right, but then they did that. And then the, the that is some sort of devastating or crushing loss. It actually got to the point where in the third period of last night's game, it was 4-1. And I don't I, I imagine only the people inside the building would have been able to see, but the Jumbotron panned to a fan's poster that said, We still care, and it had a heart on it. And then the fan was like putting up a care bear. I'm thinking, like, that's cute, but man, how sad is it that people are having to make we still care posters uh, yeah. about this hockey team? Now, the one thing I will say is if you're still on the team playoffs bandwagon, which I don't know how many people are still on it, but if you are, your hope would be that this is just an instance of the Canucks' third game in four nights. It was a home game, but obviously they've been on the road, so they've been traveling a lot. You're hoping that they were just tired and then and that the lackluster showing was a result of that. But you're right. I mean, it was a very sloppy showing. They got outworked. Uh, poor puck management, especially in the defensive zone and behind the net. Um, it was just a lot of the same mistakes that we saw earlier in the season, especially in October from the first road trip of the season. And it's kind of halted the momentum that they were starting to build. Well, look, if you're a good team, what happens is you can fall back on good habits at a in a time in the season where it could be considered a scheduled loss, right? And, yep. you know, certainly second out of a back-to-back, but also first game back off a road trip. M many people believe that's harder for a team to dive right back into. But if you had good habits, and I don't want to use the word structure, um, but, you know, if they, if they played the game the right way generally, even if you lack a certain level of energy or a certain level of finish, you at least have that to fall back on. And you don't get a first five minutes like we got last night. Like, holy cow, was that all shades of awful. And then it, you know, punctuated five and a half minutes in when uh, Quinn Hughes gives that puck away behind the net, you know, which usually Quinn Hughes has kind of been pretty accountable when he talks, but I know he was a little bit surly to J-Pat afterwards when asked about it. But it's like, you know, that was a horrible play, right? You, a player of your stature should not be doing that with Alex Ovechkin that close to you. But that careless gene that every player of the Canucks, probably not named Horvat or Pedersen has, just comes back at, at key moments. For sure. And the key thing to keep in mind, not just hockey, but in life in general, is that people always find a way to fall back to their baseline. You can't hide from your baseline for too long. And so you've got to have a strong baseline. And it goes to what you said in terms of good habits being the norm. It, it's kind of like, for example, some people um, make a New Year's resolution that they want to go to the gym for the entire year. They go for a few weeks and then it kind of tapers off, right? I've been guilty of that in the past. I'm sure a lot of other people have. The, the problem is if you don't cultivate 
in that instance, right, the identity and baseline of I'm I'm a fit person, I'm an athlete, and so just install that identity. No matter how good your intentions are, you're always going to slip back to your old ways. When people try and change their habits, it's not just about the actions you take and wanting something. You've got to change that like baseline identity. And that's how you maintain the discipline to keep going when things aren't easy, when you are tired. And that's the issue with this team is their baseline is that they don't seem to take pride in being a detailed team that outs that outworks clubs and is hard to play against, right? And just to define what some of these sort of details are, because a lot of times, you know, you even have players reference playing the right way or uh, good habits, and you and you might be wondering, well, that's pretty vague. Well, though that that sort of entails things like winning board battles and loose pucks. It includes boxing out in front of the net, uh, puck management, tying up sticks in the slot so it's not easy to get into the middle, uh, back checking hard and picking up defensive assignments. All of those are sort of unsexy things that this team doesn't seem to enjoy doing. And, and to me, it was really telling when. For example, you had both Luke Shen and Curtis Lazar very early in the season calling out the work rate, the details, and a lot of those things that I just referenced. They bluntly called it out very quickly. I I, I was on the road trip initially after the Washington game, probably the third game of the season, where Shen was already pretty harshly criticizing those aspects of their game. I don't think a, a veteran like Shen would have done that or a veteran like Lazar guys coming from winning teams would have done that if they didn't see it as their identity as this group's identity that they lack these things if it was just a case of well they usually play with good habits but they're starting to slip away from it the tone would be a lot different but right from the opening it, it seemed like the veterans just just felt that there's something wrong with this overall sort of baseline and this identity. And, and that's how you end up in this vicious cycle, right? Where I think what happens with this Canucks team is sometimes they'll run into a rut, they'll start losing games, and then they realize like, okay, we really got to hone in on our habits. They have the intention to improve them, and, and then they do it, and then they pick up some wins. But I think they're guilty of letting their foot off the gas a little bit. Uh, becoming complacent, um, and then getting to the point where when they do pick up a little momentum, they think they can, at least I've seen, not just this season, but in years past, I think they get to a point where they almost feel like they can outskill bad teams and they forget the positive habits that cause them to win. And that's why I think sometimes you'll have situations where they'll lose to bottom feeders inexplicably. And, and, we'll, talk about, and we'll be talking about why are they so inconsistent? Why do they fall down to the level of their opponent. Whereas sometimes when they play a team like a Colorado or a Vegas, they instinctually know that they're overmatched. And so they're like prepared to work their asses off. They know they have to do that just to be in the game. And I think that's part of the explanation for their inconsistency, for their massive volatility is um, sometimes the complacency and kind of the, and kind of how they turn, how they can sometimes turn off uh, a lot of those positive habits once they start to feel good about themselves. Yeah, and when you look at Winnipeg, or so Winnipeg, when you look at Washington, you know, a team that doesn't—they've got some high-end skill. There's no doubt, but they're not necessarily a a quick team, right? That can really that that should leave you reeling in in certain instances, right? I mean, from a matchup standpoint, yeah, we all view Washington a certain way, but in terms of their actual speed and ability to really hurt Vancouver's defensive you know, transition challenges and things like that. Like they shouldn't be that team. And yet they were that team throughout the first period. 100%. And you could see it in a lot of different areas where you mentioned, for example, that some teams, when they don't have a full tank of energy, they can sort of fall back on their, whether it's their structure, habits, just kind of the way that they play the game and how the Canucks aren't that. Washington, even though they're not a good team and they're, so banged up and I think they're going to miss the playoffs. I could see a lot of those little winning habits that they had that the Canucks didn't in that first period, for example, where a small thing like the way that we've talked, we've talked for so long about how the Canucks struggle to move the puck out of their own end and will criticize the blue line and all of that. But one thing that's always struck me this season is the, is how wingers support the breakout. And there was just, such a stark contrast in how Washington's wingers were able to do that, where when the Canucks is defenseman 
under their system would kind of pinch aggressively in the offensive zone uh, up the wall and, and try and force turnovers to keep plays alive in the offensive zone. It just felt like the Caps had more stability on their wingers. Like they had bigger guys, like whether it was uh, an, uh, a Mantha or an Oshi or an Ovechkin or even Connor Sheary, guys who could, they just seemed to, like I, I, there was one play where Shen, you have one of the biggest defensemen on the Canucks team, he gapped up really decisively and I was immediately thinking, oh, he's going to force a turnover there. And the Washington winger just absorbed that physical pressure from Shen shrugged it off and made a play and Washington continued transitioning the puck up the ice. Whereas I look at the Canucks' wingers and this season, that's been an area where, yeah, the, the D can't isn't mobile and they don't move the puck very well. But I also don't think that Vancouver's wingers handle pressure very well when the opposition's defensemen pinch up the wall. It feels like they start scrambling. They maybe lose battles or, the, or, or they'll turn a puck over. Whereas that was a difference there that made sort of essentially negated Vancouver's forecheck. And it was a big reason why Washington's forecheck was creating fits for Vancouver for Vancouver um, in the first couple of periods, especially was that sort of um, difference on breakouts. And that's why it's a sort of five man issue. It isn't just the blue line when we talk about how this team plays and the areas that they need to improve on. So let's look at the schedule coming up and seeing how they potentially match up. You've got a, an interesting game on Friday where they're going to pay tribute to uh, Roberto Luongo and, and kind of go through all the, the emotion around that. So that should be a lot of fun on Thursday. Thursday, so, I think. Sorry, yeah, Thursday. And then Arizona, Montreal, back to, not back-to-back, back, sorry, Saturday, Monday. Um, how does the schedule shape up for this team in terms of what we can expect? Because now we don't have the, the Tuesday built-in excuse here. Yeah, it's interesting because – for most teams, I would have looked at the situation the Canucks are in where before that Washington game, say what you want about point percentage, at the end of the day, they were only one point out of the playoff bar with only one extra game played. Drancer would and be ashamed of you entertaining this discussion. I know, I know, but bear with me. Anyway, that scenario coupled with the fact that their schedule would have included seven of their next games against teams below the playoff bar. I think Minnesota's Minnesota has worked itself uh, back into uh, the sort of last wildcard position or something. But the point is, the schedule coming up is relatively easy because even after Montreal, we're talking about San Jose, Minnesota's been inconsistent. Um, even Calgary, who I thought was going to be really good and I still believe will figure things out. They've been inconsistent and, and have had their fair share of issues. Like you've got vulnerable teams that theoretically a team like the Canucks should be able to take advantage of and start catching up and making up ground on. But time and time again, it's just hard for me to look at it that way because going back even to last season and the, and all the games they would lose against uh, Detroit or the games they'd lose against Buffalo or, um, or, um, Buffalo, for example, on that homestand, a little just prior to the trade deadline, which seemed to kind of sink the Canucks' playoff hopes. I just there's there's never a game that I look at on the Canucks' schedule and I go that opponent the Canucks are going to ha handle them like that's an easy easy win. There's never an easy win for this team, but on the on the contrast, it's also like when Colorado or Vegas again is on the schedule, the game which you'd expect them to get absolutely beat up. You like you never know if, if that's the game where they're all of a sudden going to play the gutsiest performance of the year and actually pull out with two points, right? So I I like never know what to expect from this team, regardless of what their opponent is. So like I look at the schedule and I can't like it doesn't matter to me who they're playing. To be totally honest, I'm just like this this group is a total total mystery box in terms of what performance you're going to get get from them, good or bad, regardless of opponent. Well, and, and in some cases, even against the same opponent, right? I mean, we looked at the two games they played recently against Vegas, two completely different games, right? And different circumstances for Vegas in each of those games as well. But wow, like you say, it's so difficult to, to kind of wrap your head around what we're going to see um, at any given time. When we come back, I want to get into the goaltending situation. Uh, yes, it is a situation. Just uh, not that I want to create controversy because, hey, look, we probably should have a goalie controversy going into a night when Roberto Luongo is being honored, right? Does that make sense? We're due, we're due. Right, like that should happen. That's not wrong. Um, 
Anyway, so let's uh, we'll we'll get into that, and you know, we, there's a few other players that we want to get into as well, along with the the club's decision to send both uh, Rathbone and Pod Colson down to the minors, and what that's going to look like. All right, so Harm, let's get back into this, and let's talk a bit about goaltending because Spencer Martin played last night. Now, up until that point, Demko's had just one more start than Martin so far in the month of November. Their stats aren't that different. Uh, Martin slightly better, both in terms of his uh, his save percentage, his goals against, the expected goals against. It's been slightly better, not significantly better, but certainly there's a narrative out there that Martin is getting starters usage. I don't think he is. I just think they're splitting starts. It's just more a case of Demko not getting starters usage. Now, they made the decision to go here. The uh, It wasn't back-to-back, right? Because it, the trip ended with a back-to-back situation where the second start went to Demko. So here they go with Martin. And I think many of us believed, personally, I didn't, but I know there was a lot out there that believed had the Canucks won yesterday, they would have gone back to Martin tomorrow. I think they would have continued to alternate. How do you think it would have played out? Because I think now it's pretty certain that it would have, that it is going to be Demko on Thursday. Yeah, my guess is they would have gone back to Demko just because they, I mean, he put together a good performance against the Sharks. And and because of that, you kind of look at two out of the last three starts Demko has had. He's been fairly solid, right? He had the excellent performance, probably his best game of the season against the Kings. It's pretty solid through two periods against the Golden Knights before imploding in the third period. And then it was relatively solid against Sharks too, where even the first goal that San Jose had was off a completely fluke bounce. So eight out of the nine last periods he's played, Demko's been pretty solid. I wouldn't say he's on his A-grade performance necessarily or that he's all of a sudden playing to the apex of his potential, but he's starting to build up a little bit of traction, a little bit of momentum. So even if Martin had won this game against, uh, uh, won this played and won this game against Washington, I think that it would have been the best call to go to Demko again for Thursday and kind of just continue to split starts because even when people were debating after Martin had won the games against Colorado and Vegas, there was some outside chatter even on, on Hockey Night in Canada. They were debating about whether the Canucks should roll with Martin for the second leg of the back-to-back. And I was just thinking, no way. You like, There's no way you can afford to do that because I understand the argument that you're rolling and Martin's been playing well. But regardless of how well Martin plays, you're never going to make the playoffs this season unless Demko's a big part of it. He needs to get back to his A-grade performance. So yeah, you can look at trying to pick up maximum points in the first two weeks of December and look at these really mini stretches and think about the razor margins and and how do we uh, create the absolute best environment to pick up maximum points. But regardless, you need Demko to be a massive part of whatever turnaround you manage and you can't shelve him. You can't put him in a situation where he's on the bench too often. You don't want him to be disgruntled. It's just going to, in my opinion, it would have sent the wrong message. So for starters, I think the coaching staff absolutely made the right decision. They had to start start him against San Jose and it would have been a huge mistake not to. Um, and so that that's why I think for me, even if Martin continues getting on a roll and we talk about a scenario where Demko's play continues to be inconsistent, I still think it's got to be relatively even. Like, I don't think you want a scenario where Barnes all of a sudden your number one guy and you're treating Demko like a backup, especially because you look at uh, December, there aren't a lot of back to back. So I don't, I don't think it makes sense to be in a position where you're all of a sudden handing the keys solely over to Martin. Um, I think it's got to be a relatively sort of even split um, until. Uh, unless there's a scenario where Demko obviously takes off and starts playing elite hockey again. Yeah, I tend to agree. And when we did the live room on Sunday night, Drancher and I got into a big argument because he just felt that Demko needed to be given starters usage. And I thought that was wrong on a lot of levels because number one, they're trying to bring his usage down even in a good place, right? Like coming into the year, we thought, oh, 55 games might be the right number, maybe 50 games, but you you can't roll up and push him into this into the low 60s or or high 60s so whether you buy those games now or buy them later isn't so bad he felt that well this isn't a plan that's that, that's not the plan this is just random but for me I, i'm kind of on your side here uh, which i know is bad podcasting we should be arguing but I, I think that you don't 
give Demko starters usage, but you also don't give it to Martin. The alter, the alternating uh, theme is probably the best way to go because you can get the most out of Martin, but you're not throwing Demko under the bus. And when we talk about goalie controversies in the Roberto Luongo era, think of what those guys went through, right? Where there was there was a time where Schneider was the starter with Luongo in the building. Right. Think of the the Ottawa Heritage Classic game. Like, think of all those moments. Yeah. Like, I'm telling you, Thatcher Demko can't handle that. Thatcher Demko, we we see it in his body language now. We see how he is in the room and how he is with the media and just how surly he's become. He's not the same happy-go-lucky uh, Thatcher Demko we had two years ago, like Bubble Demko and prior to that. He's a different guy. He would pout. He would not be able to emotionally handle Demko or Martin getting two-thirds of the starts. It just wouldn't work for him. He would get worse, not better. And so so I think this is kind of the best way to handle it. Don't just give it to him. You do have to earn it, but you don't give him everything, right? Like it's it's a bit of both. And, and I think they're they're handling it the right way. Now, if to me, I was expecting it would be um a, a classic Martin 5-4 Vancouver win if they were going to win it, right? As opposed, I know, he's gotten so much run support. As opposed to a 2-1 game where he stood on his head and stole it. Because if that happened, you'd have a real question on Thursday. But if it was the regular Martin win where he was just good, not incredible, you can make that decision. But, you know, I, they're not going to be dealing with that either way. So now it's an easy decision to go back to Demko. But like I said, you know, for me, the mental side of it, the emotional side of it, I just don't think he's equipped. And I think that's a bit of an indictment on Demko, to be honest. Right? Like, I think... I think you can get your play back, right? Like I think every goaltender, mm-hmm. even Carey Price has gone through this where they've had like an off year. And I know that's t- difficult to kind of hold your breath and say off year, but we've seen that where even elite goaltenders have this one year and then they get their game back. Um, but you got to get your juice back. You've got to get your confidence back. You've got to get your entire approach back. And I'm curious to see where that's going to fall with Demko because he's not dealing with this well. Well, what you have to hope is a lot of time. Well, the, first of all, Demko is probably what twenty six years old. But despite not being that young, it's his first time ever going through something like this, which I tend to give him a little bit of leeway, considering that he's going through through this experience for the first time. When you talk about players, like whether it's you know, Bo Horvat, for example, in his, so- in his uh, sophomore year, going through the very first adversity of his career. I think he went a-, a ton of games without scoring. And every player will tell you whether they're a goal scorer, a defenseman, or a goalie, that the first time you face that NHL adversity and you're going through a rut is unlike anything you've ever gone through before, and that the subsequent experiences are then easier. So, Sure, you could view it that way. And I, and I tend to agree that, for example, there have been games where Demko hasn't put in a good showing and he hasn't been accountable post-game. He's been requested and has kind of just docked that responsibility. Um, but I also tend to look at it as, despite how long he's been in this organization, it is the first time he's going through something like this. So I would be hoping that on the other side of it, he can perhaps sort of gain that maturity, uh, become mentally tougher and add those elements to his to his um, game and mental profile that he maybe doesn't have right now, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I mean, even a guy like Luongo had to go through the lowest of lows before his personality changed here, right? Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't until they lost in 2011 that he completely loosened up, lightened up all of it, right? And was able to deal with so many more of those challenges because now on a professional level, he'd been through the worst, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and guys go through different things on a personal level and at home and everything like that. But from a professional level, um, I, I don't know if this is the worst for, for Thatcher Demko, right? Like where it'll go to from here, we'll see. But yeah, I mean, all sorts of goalies have matured. Um, they've gone through ups and downs in their career. The guy's got ability. There's no doubt about it. If he has it between the ears, his ability will come back. And we'll, we'll find that out soon enough. I- I, I really believe that people can, like, just as a rule of thumb in life, I really believe that people can gain that in terms of that mental toughness. I agree. I, I, I think, 
I mean, some people might have it easier than others, but I always tend to believe that it more often than not having that sort of strength and um, that ability to overcome adversity more often than not, like it, you have to go through the hardship and come out on the other end and become stronger to, to then feel confident going through it another time. I just feel like if you go through um, life or go through a career and you never face any hardships, you're just naturally going to be like, just by default, you're going to be um, a little bit soft. And I'm not saying Demko soft. I just think it's human nature that until you go, till you're thrown into the deep end without a life vest and you're sort of panicking, I, I just don't think that um, the first time you go through it, you're necessarily going to be well-equipped and, and that you're going to know exactly what to do. I think it takes some level of struggling. I think it takes some level of of being at, at at the absolute you know lowest of lows to then be able to climb out. And then once you've been through it, then you look back at that stretch and you go, wow, I'm so glad that I went through that because now I have so much more confidence and ability and it becomes sort of a reference point that you can look at in, in future times when you're struggling and say, well, if I went through that experience years ago, then I absolutely unequivocally sort of believe in myself. And we even saw it with Elias Pedersen, right? Like how much did he struggle um, in the first half of last season? I guarantee you, he learned so much and became so much stronger as an athlete. And years down the line, I bet you Pedersen is going to look back at that experience that he went through and be glad that he went through that hardship. And I, and I really believe that Demko is going to going to feel that same way. So I'm not as worried about the mental side, just because I think, again, in life in general, whether it's, you know, just regular people or athletes, I, I always think that you need to go through it the first time, and then you can judge whether a player or a person's actually equipped um, to go through hard times. And get another couple of guys going through hard times right now are Vasily Podkolzin and Jack Rathbone, who have headed to the American Hockey League. They've got a, a bunch of games, a bunch of home games in Abbotsford. Uh, they played last night. Like, what's your what's your takeaway on the decision and whether or not this is the right thing for both players? It, it certainly seems like it might be the only thing right now, given the fact they're not playing. I think Pod Colson should be in the lineup, um, regardless of how well the team is playing. Like, you can make a case for him ahead of a handful of guys from, um, you know, from Hoaglander to Dries to uh, uh, Joshua. You know, like you can you can make the case. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, Pod Colson was a little bit surprising to me. I think Rathbone, we all kind of expected that he hadn't played so long and he didn't seem to be in the club's NHL plans. I think for Pod Colson, you're right that he is one of the team's top 12 forwards. And if you're just going solely based off ability, then um, he probably deserves to crack the lineup. But and having said that, when you step back and look through the lens of simply what's best for his development... I actually don't mind him spending a bit of time in Abbotsford. I don't think he's going to spend very long there. But the one thing that I've always kept in the back of my mind with Pod Colson is even when he, even when you go back to all the years that he had in Russia in the KHL, I ask myself, when's the last time that he was playing a top line role, playing first unit power play, pay, playing first unit penalty kill, that he was one of the top go-to workhorse sort of players playing 18, 19, 20, 21 minutes a night for his team and carrying that weight of being a difference maker and sort of being leaned on as a go-to offensive, um, offensive firepower. I, I just think it's been years since he's been in that sort of environment just because he was fast-tracked a little bit to the KHL and obviously he played for SKA, which the Army teams are always so deep. And when those teams know that a player like Pod Colson is going to be leaving for North America eventually, they just have no incentive to prioritize his development. So you saw in a lot of cases that he wouldn't earn, he wouldn't get the opportunities that he otherwise probably earned to, for example, play in the top nine. And as a result, we for years he's been sort of in in kind of the very similar situation as he has been this season, where he might get the the occasional game in the top nine, but more or less spending most of um, most of his games in the bottom six, playing limited minutes in and out of the lineup. I think it's actually great for him to get that feeling back of of wow, I'm a go to offensive guy, and being able to build that confidence because you don't want after years and years and years of a guy being in a specific role to all of a sudden lose his um, offensive touch, to lose that feeling of, oh yeah, I can be a real core player and a, and a really different difference maker. So that's what I'm going to be looking for 
Uh, for him out in Abbotsford is I don't think that he's necessarily going to be spending a lot of time there, but hopefully he can get that feeling back and that it can hopefully help his confidence. Because when I look at the way that his season started, I actually thought in the first handful of games, he looked very solid when he, for example, started on uh, uh, Horvat's line and he was generating chances with his playmaking. He just seemed to not have the bounces go his way early. And then after that, when he then started getting demoted further down the lineup, that's, I think, when he started to lose a little bit of that confidence and maybe his play started eroding as well. But I am actually not as bearish as down on his season as you as you may be given the point totals. I think he's played better than those suggest. And I, I look at the opportunity in Abbotsford as hopefully a positive for him to kind of take the next step and come back to Vancouver with some confidence so that when he comes in, He's, he's hopefully in a position where he's playing a top nine role and he takes it and he just runs away with it. Abbotsford with a 6-3 win over Bakersfield on Tuesday. Pod Colson with a goal. It was an empty netter. Uh, two shots in this game as well. And uh, Rathbone, two shots, no points uh, in this one. He was a plus two. Pod Colson was even. I know those are raw stats, but they're the only ones available on their site. So that's what I'm going to give you. Um but uh, let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, there's some other players we want to talk about as well and also get into Bo Horvat and his contract. Um, Freed's dropping some nuggets and we'll look at some comparables and things like that when we return. So, Harm, let's talk about a couple of other guys, um, Hoaglander and Garland. And we've we've long talked about this as, as an organization that are these two players redundant, right? Both undersized, uh, skill-first players. Um, do they need both of them? Can they function with both of them right now? Uh, you look at Hoaglander, who's been in and out of the coach's doghouse uh, in his time here, but getting an opportunity, playing on a line with Bo Horvat and JT Miller, scored the goal for the Canucks last night. And, you know, in the morning skate, Bruce talked about how he's committed more on the defensive side of things. On the other side, you've got Garland, who's now playing in a third line role along with Bo Horvat, but they've got Sheldon Dries in the middle, not necessarily as many offensive roles. And Garland really struggling for this team. For sure. And before I get into my take, here um, and, and kind of what I've seen. I'm, I'm curious to see what you've seen from Garland because I've got my opinion, but I'm kind of curious with Garland what, what you've seen. First. I see the worst of Connor Garland because he's on the perimeter, right? And, you know, we saw him when he first got here and you kind of got the sense of we're not sure who he's going to fit with, but we know he's so confident on the puck and he got into those spin cycles from time to time, but he had a hunger to protect the puck and to, and to possess the puck. And now I'm seeing the puck get off his stick really, really quickly. And I, you know, with a player like that, are you going to get into those dirty areas? I know that's real cliche. I'm not seeing much of that either in his game. Definitely. And it's interesting because when I look at, look at the way the Canucks' lineup is currently constructed, when you, Send send Miller to the wing, which has worked out really well for him. The problem, yes, for him. But the you don't have a logical is, center to have a top nine. Exactly right, and that's I think when I looked at the third line, and I was looking at, for example, when you had Dries, Garland, and Besser, I'm thinking Sheldon Dries is clearly the weak link, right? Like he's he's played fine, he's been okay, but he's not an NHL caliber top nine centerman. Then you have Brock Besser, who at his best can be a complementary offensive piece, but he's never going to be a, necessarily a play driver. He's not going to be the te- the type of guy that you lean on to make a ton of plays. He's more the sort of more the sort of player that you're looking at to win battles and then get open, find the soft ice, and you're hoping someone gets him the puck. So when I saw that line constructed, I expected. Boy, Garland needs to be that spark, that play driver, the player who essentially drives the bus for that line. And we haven't seen it at all so far. I mean, for starters, I think it's jarring that when you have a player like Garland who's making $5 million and he doesn't provide really any value on the penalty kill, very minimal value on the power play, he's never really been a, a producer in that sort of role. He needs to be an elite five-on-five workhorse to justify that kind of ticket. That's usually what he's been year in and year out. And I'm looking at the numbers right now. Last year, 17 goals and 20 primary assists at five-on-five. This year so far, one goal and two primary assists at five-on-five. Like that is for, for a player who doesn't bring any special teams value doesn't bring any defensive value much much of a- anything there at five on five as well. 
that is that's incredible. That's such a stark drop off. And it was telling to me, for example, the the sort of trickle down effect it has on the rest of the lineup. Where in that Washington game, the Canucks were down multiple goals. It was around maybe seven or eight minutes left in the third. There was a TV timeout, offensive zone start, and Bruce Boudreau was sending out the Oman Joshua Lazar line. And I understood why he didn't play the top six off of that TV timeout with either Pedersen or Horvat because shortly thereafter he pulled the goalie and, and tried to, you know, he wanted to rest those guys. But normally that's a situation where you send out your third line and it's like you're multiple goals down and you need some offense. You've got to have a third line that can produce. And that's the sort of role where if Garland's playing well, that you have that expectation. So to me, the fact that Boudreaux had to turn to his fourth line after a TV timeout, everyone's rested, and they're the ones being leaned on to create offense. Like now, all of a sudden, because of Garland's struggles, you're asking the fourth line to carry way, way more of a load. You're asking them to do too much. And Besser continues to look lost too, because he needs a guy that can distribute the puck. Um, Dries obviously isn't a, isn't a top nine center, so it's created Garland's struggles in a vacuum have created has created such an impact on the rest of other players in the lineup and it's difficult to kind of sort of determine what the solution is for this because i don't know who he has good chemistry with i i haven't found a player where i'm like they click really well it seems like this canucks roster has a lot of forwards that like to play north south and garland's playing style is just so abstract it's so different with the spins and cycles and the unpredictability that he's found it tough to gain chemistry really really with anybody so far yeah no there's no doubt and and this is the challenge right i mean we talked about a top 9 predicated on those centers and they just don't have that right now so and you know brock besser had the quietest nine game point streak in history right <laughs> like in terms of how much you actually notice this guy on yeah. the ice so it's difficult, right? Because both of those, I thought that Garland was a player who could generate more on his own. Just based on yes. what I saw last year, that hasn't been there. Bo Horvat has never, sorry, not Bo Horvat, Brock Besser has never been that guy. So, you know, you, you can't expect him to turn into something. So as long as they roll with these lines and they're right to roll with them, right? And we've seen, Hor or we've seen Besser not necessarily being a great fit with Horvat and Miller in terms of two-way impact, yeah. you know, in the defensive end. So what they're doing right now, they've that the way that line is set up right now with Hoaglander gives them a little more pace. They seem to have found some chemistry. And we know these things are going to ebb and flow over the course of the season. And it's easy for Bruce at some point to take one of Garland and Besser and move them up onto that line if they need it. But right now they're not showing enough to justify it. So it's such a chicken and the egg thing. And both of them right now are completely toiling without a center. So I like I don't know how you fix that one. It, it, you honestly just have to hope that Garland finds it, figures it out. Because again, like you mentioned, he's one of the few players on this team that can create five and five offense on his own. Remember, this is a guy who last season was top thirty among all NHL forwards in terms of his five on five points. Even when JT Miller was a ninety nine point player. Garland was still, I think, I mean, ultimately they were tied with both having 47, five and five total points, but Garland had played fewer games and obviously played a lot fewer, fewer minutes. So he was your best five on five point producer Garland was, and, and now it's just kind of all completely dried up. The fortunate thing, at least from a top six perspective is at least Hoaglander's benefit there so far. The difference I've noticed with with him, what he's kind of brought to that line with Horvat Miller, is he seems to have the skill of being able to make the quick play along the wall in the defensive zone or the neutral zone to help transport the puck. Like that's why that's a big reason why I think him and Horvat have typically fit so well. For example, together when um, when Hoaglander was just a rookie, was Hoaglander had this. Let's start with Horvat. Horvat doesn't play like a tra traditional centerman in terms of his zone exits and in his transition responsibilities. Most centermen like to come low and slow and they like to be deep in their own end and, and be the ones that are lugging the puck up. And then it's the responsibility of the wingers to kind of fly up the wings and the centerman distributes. Horvat's not that, right? We know that he isn't a natural playmaker. And so always when I've looked at his microstats, it's always struck me 
that he's never really been involved on breakouts, that instead he likes to be the one when you watch him to flee the zone quickly and be the first man up so that instead a winger can feed him the puck in full stride so that he can create chances off the rush. That's, I think, when Hoaglander is playing at his best, it seemed to unlock that rush element out of Horvat better because Hoaglander could all of a sudden make quick plays off the wall, uh, contribute on zone exits, and Horvat just, he didn't have to worry about helping with the breakout. He could just fly up, fly up the up the ice, and it seemed to work really well where Horvat could stretch north-south. And there have been plays where that line's created more off the rush, and we're seeing Hoaglander make an impact with his speed, um, especially with his tenacity. The thing, I guess, now we're, we're all just kind of waiting and, and hoping can stick is, um, number one, the finishing, right? Because no matter how well you play in terms of creating chances, the struggle we've seen with Hoaglander the last year and a bit is that he creates all these chances. He doesn't seem to find a way to bury them, which thankfully he did last night. Uh, and then the other element is obviously whether his defensive game can hold up, which is a bit of a concern for me because even when he has been playing well generally through this three games or so stretch that they've been together as a line, there were moments in that San Jose game where he'd have you know a brutal neutral zone giveaway where he's trying to thread the needle across the ice or uh, a bad defensive read. So I just hope that he can keep that part up, especially because in Horvat and Miller, those aren't guys that can be defensive safety, safety nets. They can't be babysitting him. Um, you can't rely on them to bail Hoaglander out if he makes defensive mistakes. So this is a big opportunity for him because it's like this is a clear path, a clear runway for him to escape the coach's doghouse. So he's got to take advantage of it. Yeah, the more you produce, the more leeway you get when things aren't going well in other parts of your game, right? Like they're they're willing to live with some mistakes as long as you're producing. For me, I wouldn't mind seeing them take Curtis Lazar and give him a third line opportunity. Um, I know yeah. he was brought in to be a fourth liner, but he's a bit more of a legitimate NHL than Sheldon Dries And that opens a door for you to get Pod Colson back in, even though you can debate what's better, more minutes in Abbotsford or fourth line minutes here. But certainly that fourth line had been given a level of trust. And we'll see what happens when Tanner Pearson gets back, right? Another guy who's going to be lost without Horvat, right? Uh, so, you know, do, where do you slide him in in all of this? There'll probably be some other injuries along the way that'll allow it to fit because no team has ever truly healthy, but, you know, there are a glut of wingers. So, um, but when you look at guys like Besser and Garland, who I think both should be moved, certainly not much value there to move at this point in time. Uh, you mentioned Horvat a lot in and around all of this. So let's talk a bit about Horvat before we go and report from Elliot Friedman that it's not over yet with him re-signing in Vancouver. The Canucks are still wanting to get that done if possible, but Rupe Hintz just signed a mammoth deal. How much of a comparable is he? Certainly a little more offensive driven than what Bo has been over the course of his career, but you can't deny Horvat's numbers this year uh, as well, at least as far as the goal scoring is concerned. Is it a legit comparison? One's a, one was an RFA as well, whereas Bo isn't, which gives him even more leverage. Yeah, so I reached out to an NHL agent this morning to get his read or sense of uh, of the comparable and the, and the Hens contract and whether it could be relevant. And he sort of just said Horvat's camp might use it, but it's probably not that accurate of a comp because we can talk about how great Horvat's been this season. At the end of the day, he's only really done it for this season. We're talking about a guy whose career high is 61 points. Whereas you look at Hints, he's basically been a point per game guy for three years now. He had 43 points in 41 games in the 2021 shortened season. He had 37 goals last year. He's on pace for 89 points again. And yeah, he's Horvat's got the leverage of being an open market guy, but ultimately Hints being a couple years younger does make him a more appealing player to commit long term for. So I'm not necessarily worried about the hints comparable necessarily. The, the comparison that actually scares me is uh, Tomash Hurdle because his extension obviously happened around the last last trade deadline when there was all the talk about um, whether San Jose should trade him or whether they should resign him. First of all, I think that's more comparable because Hurdle was also a pending UFA. Hurdle was also, he signed that contract. He's, he's a year older than Bo and he signed that contract last year. So age-wise, you're talking about a player who's, basically in an identical scenario. And in terms of production, 
they're a lot more similar where Hurdle also had never been a point per game guy. Hurdle had been more of a two-time 30-goal producer. He had a career high of 77 points. I just think production, age, age-wise, even role-wise, upside-wise, I think Hurdle is a much better fit, but it's still a scary comparable because Horvat has now with his with the outburst that he's had this season, that becomes more and more of a legit comp. And Hurdle got 8.1 million on his cap it. Like that's scary. And I think we're getting to a point with Horvat where in terms of his market value and what he'd be worth on the open market, what he should be, what he could be able to command, I think it's a fair debate as to whether he's playing himself to the point where he's worth eight million per year. Now, I'm not saying that's what the Canucks should give him, because if I if I was in the Canucks situation, there's no way I'm paying Bo Horvat eight million dollars. Didn't sound like not, they wanted to pay him seven initially. Well, I mean, I think it was if it was something like seven flat. Like I don't think that they would have hesitated too much at that. I think you know my guess is Horvat's ask would have been closer to the high sevens. Again, that's my guess based off of market comparables and, and the way this sort of situation is dragged on. I don't think it would have been that low. But the problem that the Canucks are in right now is leverage-wise, they're in a position where they're kind of screwed their current game plan that this management group has chosen if Horvat walks. Because for starters, when they re-signed JT Miller, part of the incentive, part of the reason for that was because they felt confident that he could be a long-term fit at center. We're talking about a scenario right now where Sheldon Dries is, is a top nine center because JT Miller has to sort of play on the wing to maximize his value. Now imagine going into the next season and Horvat's gone. Like you have, like Pedersen's your only legit yeah. high end centerman. Like That's who's your second line center? It's like you disaster. can't afford that. They didn't right? want to lose both thinking they both could play center and they picked wrong. They picked wrong. And so now Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin are in a situation where First of all, now Horvat's camp knows this, right? They've got all this leverage, whereas before I think the Canucks could sort of play play it in a way where it's like, oh, we've got Pedersen, we've got Miller at center, we don't need Bo, and now the tables have turned. Especially because the team's also now spiraled out of the gate, and it's it's sort of put their like I'm looking at this team and I'm going, if they lose Bo, there's no way, there's no chance that they can continue to sort of go down, go down this half-baked retool path. Like you ha- you have no choice but to blow it up. And now I think you and I both will both could both agree that the right situation in this is probably to unless there's a scenario where you can move Miller um and then resign resign Horvat unless that's a possibility which i don't think the club has really considered that to this point yet in terms of the moving JT Miller side of it i think the right move is probably to look to get a haul back for Horvat and just commit to uh, sort of blow, blowing things up and committing to a new direction but my worry is if management looks at this team if ownership looks at this team and they still are reluctant to go down this blow it up rebuild path. If they have any sort of uh, motivation to continue being competitive in the short term, that they become desperate, then look at Horvat as an indispensable and that they then basically give him a blank check. Yeah. And it's not just that they're not going to get the haul they think they're going to get. And that's been proven when we saw what happened with JT Miller, you know, when he was still masquerading as a center at that point, whereas he's not now, um, they're not going to get the haul they think they can get. It's just not going to happen. They haven't shown us that ability to maximize assets to this point. So sure, but he's still worth a lot. Is and like so was JT Miller. Like, what is a, what to. is a lot? What is a haul? Do you really think they're going to get a haul at that point, or do you think they're going to settle because they're just not prepared to let him walk? So what's worse, settling or overpaying? I don't believe they're going to get a haul, and that's not a shot at Bo Horvat. It's just the way the market seems to have worked around this team. They just haven't shown me that ability to go execute that. So it's a fair concern. I'll say though, like even with Miller, right? Like even in a depressed market value scenario, like you still would have gotten at least a package centered around the first round pick plus, like it's still worth way more. Plus it's not even about the, the, the sort of assets that you get back. But once you clear that cap space, 
as a rebuilding team, that becomes such an asset, right? Like you look at the Montreal Canadiens, for they're example. Not, they're not clearing that much. It's just about what they could be clearing or could be spending. Well, I mean, I mean, it's you. They'd be committing like what seven and a half, eight million next season if they absolutely. Keep them? So, so I'm just saying, like I know what you're that. saying, but that's actually not yeah. what's being cleared. It's the five and a half that's being cleared. True, but it's just money that's not being spent. Sure, even if it's five and a half, even if it's five and a half. Let's like look at what Montreal did. They took on the Monahan contract. They picked up a first round pick, expiring deal. Now they're gonna he's he's re- rehabilitated his value. Now they're gonna uh, flip him, probably retain some salary and get more assets back, right? So it's not just you clear you get like a first round pick plus whatever for Horvat and you get that package. But then if you commit to this different direction of we're gonna build for the future. You're then in a scenario where then you can also use that. Like teams are so desperate to move cap space in today's environment, they'll pay you a lot of assets. I mean, the Canucks paid essentially a second round pick for minimal cap cap savings on Jason Dickinson. So, like, you can't just view what is Horvat's, like, what is the package you could get back for him in a vacuum. When once you get that cap space, you're going to be able to use that to bring in even more assets. I agree with you though that on a f- surface level value, it's not like you're going to get this like, it's not like not like you're going to get Bowen Byram or like some legit like A grade sort of prospect, and that you're all of a sudden going to have a future franchise star sort of prospect in your pipeline. But I still think like I just I just can't. Stand another scenario where they commit to this direction of just doubling down. I, well, I, I look, I'm with you. I just don't have faith. And on top of that, in order to just move on and from Bo and take that approach, it's going to mean other moves, right? Like For you sure. can't look at that move in a vacuum because it's not going to free up enough cap space because of the other contracts that are going to kick in, right? Like when you look at JT's money starts next year, they're two years away from having to pay Pedersen big, right? So you know, you've got that's to look- exactly why they're screwed. I know. So that's why you've got to up. look at this in terms of okay, it's the Bo money, it's the Tyler Myers money, it's get off of a uh, Besser or Garland money. There's yep, a lot of it that has to happen, and I, I, I just don't have that level of faith. Like you know, we're not wrong that it should happen. I yeah. just don't have that faith. Um, with that, yeah, that's the worry. That's the worry. I'm worried. About, I'm right there with you in, in being worried about that. Like, Bo himself legit. doesn't do it. Bo himself doesn't yep. do it. Um, with that, uh, that's it for this episode. We're going to be back next week. Uh, if you're looking for other podcast options, actor John Hamm joins Sean Gentilly and Jeremy Rutherford on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday, December the 6th. Ryan Reeves, meanwhile, is Michael Russo's guest this week on Straight From The Source. Also, you can follow us on your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and a review. Uh, our podcast, our live room, Drancer and I did on Sunday. If you want to let, check that out, that's also available uh, subscribe to the Athletics NHL's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the Athletic Hockey Show. You can get a new subscription just in time for the holidays. A new subscription to the Athletic for just $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash Vancast Harm. Have a great week, bud. We'll see you at the rink. Thanks, you too.